0: Eric Robison, obesity expert, tells us about the body's adaptability, the myth of lack of discipline as a cause of obesity, and the scarcity of plenty. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Dr. Eric Ravison. He is the Associate Executive Director for Clinical Research at Pennington Biomedical Research Laboratory Center. Is it laboratory or center?
1: That's a center.
0: Center. Okay. Center in Louisiana. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Liz. My pleasure.
0: So tell me, please, how you got interested in this kind of research.
1: I'm originally from Switzerland, as you can hear, uh, French speaking. And I was fortunate to do my uh, PhD in an institution Uh, University of Lausanne in Switzerland, which was quite well-renowned for energy metabolism. In other words, the tradition of this university when it comes to obesity was to measure energy expenditure in people or their metabolic rate. And I did all my PhD. Uh, looking at a new method, which is called indirect calorimetry to measure how many calories you burn. And, you know, you can do that with a mask. You can do that with a hood surrounding your head. Or now we have techniques like at the Pennington Biomedical Research Center in which we can keep people for 24 hours or even days and measure how many calories they burn.
0: And so that was something that you decided would be what you would study and related things after you finished your PhD?
1: Since this technology was totally novel in the late 70s, early 80s, I was invited by the NIH, the National Institute of Health, to come and build the first metabolic chamber in the US to measure energy expenditure in people. And I joined a group from NIH, which is based in Phoenix, Arizona, because uh, they wanted to study the Pima Indians. And the Pima Indians in Arizona have the highest prevalence of type 2 diabetes, but also the second highest prevalence of obesity in the entire world.
0: That's really interesting. Do you think that the Pima Indians were always obese and always suffered from type two diabetes or is that a modern phenomenon?
1: Uh, Absolutely not. I think we have even, you know, 100 years ago, there are pictures from Pima Indians and they were totally normal size, and I think it's been mostly the change in the environment which has triggered this increase in body size and the development of diabetes. Like Jocelyn, who was a famous diabetes researcher, said the uh, biology load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And I think that they were predisposed to, you know, gaining weight and becoming Uh, with obesity, but it's really the change in the environment. And one of the big change for Native Americans was the fact that, you know, at one point during the gold rush, the white settlement, uh, the white settlement, tried to uh, irrigate their field with the rivers in Arizona, for example, Mm -hmm. and tap the water and there was no more water to go on their uh, usual habitat. And they become, they became subsidized. And what the US government gave to most of the native American tribes at that time was flour and lard. And what did they do with that? They did what is called Uh, Fried bread. Indian bread. Indian bread, fried bread. Uh And this was something terrible for, you know, for themselves in general.
0: Yes. So it's really their diet changed because of of all these cultural conditions and that changed everything.
1: Yeah, the the diet changed, but also the physical activity. Before that, they were were fishing in the river. They were irrigating their field, and they were, you know, having corn and, uh, you know, simple agriculture, but it was an agricultural culture. And after that, they became dependent on that, and they were subsidized, and you know, they lost their physical activity and got this unhealthy diet in general.
0: Wow. So how long were you in Phoenix? Um,
1: 14 years from 1983 to 1998. And I did a lot of studies measuring Energy balance, food intake, as well as energy expenditure in this population, and trying to understand the link between obesity and type 2 diabetes.
0: And so, do you think you found that link?
1: Uh, Yes and no, of course. First of all, there's still a lot of diabetes among the Pima Indian, but we know that obesity is a major trigger of what we call insulin resistance. When you gain weight, you gain adipose tissue. Now, the good adipose tissue is the one which is below your skin, but you have also adipose tissue going in your abdomen or going in your liver or going in your muscle. And this is you know fat at the wrong place and this fat creates what we call insulin resistance and the insulin is not working well to push the glucose into these tissues and therefore you know they start to have what we call insulin resistance high blood sugar with the consequence of pumping the insulin and having you know the beta cell or the pancreas which is Secreting insulin, as to produce more and more insulin, until you get an exhaustion of the pancreas.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. So then you you left Phoenix, and is that when you went to or came to Louisiana?
1: No, no. I went uh, to Eli Lilly as mm-hmm. director of Endocrine. This is a pharmaceutical company to do, at that time, all the pharmaceutical company. Big companies became very interesting at targeting obesity. You know we have medication for obesity, it's not very very efficacious but it's getting better and better. But I spent three years there and I decided that I wanted to return to academia and it's when I joined in 2000 the Pennington Biomedical Research Center to do more studies on obesity and Uh, you know, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, and what we call the comorbidities, the comorbidities of obesity.
0: So what are those comorbidities?
1: Yeah, I mentioned, I mean, the first one is cardiovascular disease. I mean, it's heart disease, it's stroke, it's hypertension. And the other one, which is maybe the most prevalent now, is becoming type 2 diabetes. And you know, when when I was in Phoenix in the early eighties and mid nineties, uh, it was very rare to find a kid, a Pima Indian kid with diabetes. But as you know, I'm talking about type two diabetes, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. The, the diabetes, which is related to obesity. But now you have kids, I mean, teenagers having type two diabetes. And when we know the consequences of diabetes, on the long-term, this is really a serious condition. Yes. and you know, To answer your question, there is diabetes and diabetes is becoming very, very costful to the healthcare system in general.
0: And so what, what kinds of things are you researching and what, are you, what have you found a, that is relatively new taking us in different directions?
1: Oh, that's a, you know, I, I can take half a day to answer this question, <laughs> but I'm gonna be I'm gonna be short and simple. Okay. The, the first thing, we know that obesity, which is a trigger of cardiovascular disease and type 2 diabetes, and others, you know, I mean, you know, joint problems. If you're too heavy, your your knees are gonna give up and so right. on, arthritis and so on. But we have learned from the mid-90s that there is, you know, obesity is not just a lack of will. You know, you eat too much or you don't exercise enough. You know, when I was doing my PhD, it was exercise more, eat less, and you'll be okay.
0: Uh And we know
1: it's not the case. And now we have animal models clearly showing that regardless of what they eat and do, there is a tendency, a propensity to gain weight. And we have these two genes called the leptin gene and the leptin receptors, which were discovered in the mid nineties, showing that, you know, you have a pathway, which is controlling how you basically build your body fat. And this was a major discovery we changed the concept of obesity being a lack of willpower to a concept that this is a true disease. Now, going back to your first question, I think that the trigger has been the change in the environment. But most of the population, most of us, have not evolved over generations to be, you know, uh, spendthrift. We were rather thrifty. You know, there were periods of feast and famine. And those babies, um, again, among the Pima Indians, who were the best as, as, uh, to survive the periods of famine. Were the survivors, and they were the one, you know, being able to store the fat, to store the calories during the periods of feast. And I think it's the truth that this is the truth for most people in our society, who are predisposed to weight gain. There are some expe- uh, exception there are some people who come to me and say hey you always talk about obesity i've been trying to gain you know five kilograms or 10 pounds i've never been able to put these 10 pounds on and i would be more much more attractive if i had a little bit more muscle mm-hmm. but those are the exception most of us are predisposed to weight gain and again this has been the change in the environment which has increased the prevalence of obesity from about you know, 25 to 30% in the mid 70s to now 42% in 2018. 42% of the American population has what we call obesity.
0: And so would you say that that the change is that we are eating too much or is it what we are eating that is the problem? In other words, you know, everything you you read about industrialized food and how you're not eating just natural food that's cooked at home from just the actual plant material or things like that, or that animals have hormones in them that affect uh, you when you eat them. Are, Are all of those things combining to cause a problem? Or is it Is it a combination of lifestyle and environmental and cultural factors with this tendency? I mean, what you're basically saying is the people who tend to be obese are probably the people who would survive the best if they were in a starvation situation because their bodies would adapt to that. Or has adapted. Yes,
1: I, I, I think you, you, you said a lot of perfect words. I mean, th- this is a constellation of factors. You, you started. Do we eat too much? There's no question that we eat too much. But why? Because food is available all the time at a very cheap price and very palatable. You know, the food industry has responded to the demand of the consumers. Uh, A friend of mine who is a a famous researcher in in England is always saying there are two things on which people don't compromise. It's the cost and the palatability of food. You want good palatable food, and you live in Louisiana, you know that, Mm -hmm. and you want it for the cheapest price. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the food industry has been, they have been mastered, as, as doing what we call processed food which you you know you take out of a pack you put it in the microwave it tastes good uh, it's pleasing and it's rather cheap mm-hmm. and you know i remember my grandmother i mean i don't know how much but at least i would say 30% of her budget for the month was for food now how much do you spend for food unless you always go to the restaurant it's less than 10%. And I think that this is one of the conditions. Food is available everywhere at a low cost. And, you know, people started to change their behavior. When I grew up, I had a breakfast. I went to school. I was coming back home, walking to have my lunch with my grandparents. Then I was going back to school. Coming back from school, I had what we call les quatre which is, you know, the... the the little snack, which was bread and chocolate most of the time. And then I had dinner. But now you see people constantly, you know, sipping on, you know, caloric drinks or eating a snack during the entire day. There's no periods of fast. It's all food intake. And now, uh, of course, the lifestyle, has changed too. Uh, You know, we, we, people are fighting for the handicapped parking, you know, in front of the stores to be as close right. as possible. Yes. And I think this is an aberration, uh, you know, being from Europe, again, we don't have this luxury because the, the cities were designed before the cars. And, you know, there, there's not very much parking slide, uh, spots and you still have to walk. You take the, the public transportation and you walk much more. I did a sabbatical in Switzerland and Paris uh, in uh, 10 years ago and I was wearing a pedometers and I was putting about two to two and a half times the number of steps per day than I was walking in Louisiana. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and of course we also just sit at desks or whatever to a, to a great extent and don't maybe get up for two or three hours. And so, I mean, I think that adds to it, too. Most of us have that kind of work. Uh,
1: Absolutely. The sectors of agriculture has been decreasing. The number mm -hmm. of farmers, the sector of industrial manufacturers has been decreasing. And we have more and more jobs, you know, being done at your desk. And COVID-19 has been a fantastic experiment of nature to show that, you know, 80% Eighty percent of the people can work from home,
0: right? Right. That's going to be its own revolution as we have people deciding that they don't even need to have offices like of a big company because yeah. everyone can work from home. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, what is it that you are working on that is going to help? I mean, is I? You know, it seems that people who have. Um, uh, surgery are, are helped sometimes. And I've, I've heard that uh, children or young, younger people are being approved for the surgery than had been done before. Is it, is it all just lifestyle changes that happen or what kind of drugs or other things are being, are being produced and recommended for people who are, who are trying to deal with the problem?
1: Yeah. Like I said, 42% of obesity, we're not going to have surgery on 42% of the people in this country. Right. This we know. Uh, Lifestyle intervention has been very, very important. And it works. But it's tough. I mean, it's tough to, you know, discipline yourself to try to avoid the snacks, to try to be more active, to try to get up from your desk every 15 minutes and walk a few steps. All these things are very, very difficult. But with intensive lifestyle, we can administer 7 to 10% of weight loss to most people. But the problem is when you have reached this 10% of weight loss, what do you do? You have to maintain that. And most people relapse. And you know, the yo yo dieting and all that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have that. That's why we need to have basically help from, uh, you know, for example, medication to help in terms of decreasing food intake or increasing your metabolic rate. And this can help and now unfortunately up to about two or three years ago we didn't have very very good drugs for weight loss Mm -hmm. first of all the the bar is very high for safety Mm -hmm. because you know there's still this this thing that you know most people are obese because of their bad behavior right and therefore you know the the safety for cancer drug is much higher which i understand that for an obesity drug uh, and and uh, you, you know, I'm much lower at the bar, right? Mm-hmm. But now there are some drugs which are, which are going to be approved, which are drugs which are already approved for diabetes called GLP1 agonist, which are producing weight loss of 15 to 20 percent. Now, you talked about surgery. Surgery is producing weight loss of 25 to 30%, especially the gastric bypass or now the gastric banding. And those surgeries are costful, of course, but we know, I mean, people are not stupid. You know, They know that if you pay a surgery $25,000 in insurance, you, you recover this cost over three to four years in terms of expenses which are associated with your hypertension, your diabetes. You have remission of the hypertension a lot of time. You have remission of diabetes and so on. And I think it's a calculation. But now I'm gonna tell you my, my major bias in all that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have too many deaths on highways, you impose seat belts. Yes. If you have too many deaths, you know, let's say in southern Louisiana 100 years ago because of malaria, you dry the swamps. If you have too many deaths because of obesity and its comorbidities, you have to reverse part of this environment. And I'm sorry to say, but this is also by public health policies that we are going to reverse this huge wave epidemic of obesity or pandemic of obesity with 42% of the adult population in the US having a disease which is called obesity.
0: And you think that that's coming? That there's going to be um, something active? I mean, I remember when there was an attempt by public health to stop people from smoking. It took a long time before that was finally accepted and that it became Kind of a negative thing to be a smoker. How do you think that public health can can encourage people to make these changes?
1: Yeah, I I, I would say you know I'm, I'm said it's said to say, but the U.S. is going to trail when it comes to this mm-hmm. because you know trans fat trans fat in Europe was banned first in the Netherlands in the 70s. And then in most countries in Europe in the 80s. And here it's only in the early 2000s that they realized that trans fat was very bad. And, you know, we always trail now, why is that? Is that the power of the food industry lobby and all that? There's part of that. But I think your analogy with smoking is a good one. I think it's not going to be done overnight. It's going to take a few generations. But look, now, what is the the rate of smoking in the US? It's less than 20 percent. It used to be 40 Mm percent. I mean, we have done a tremendous job for that. Now, what does it take? It takes taxing bad food and subsidizing healthy food. But when you talk about taxes and subsidize you know this is a taboo word in this country mm-hmm. and I think that it's going to be a long time to realize that but I was president of the Obesity Society in 2007 and 2008 and I had one of the best talk that I ever heard he was the director of the congress office budget uh, Horczak was his name. And he showed the data that if the pandemic of obesity was continuing to increase at the speed that it was increasing, the entire budget, US budget of the government of 2007 would be necessary in 2030 just for healthcare. And I think it was amazing. And when we are gonna bleed that through the nose, it's when things are gonna happen.
0: Yeah, you're probably right because let's face it, money talks, that's what it is. (laughs) It's the best motivation it seems for almost anything. Um, So when you talk about comorbidities, this is a a kind of a a more cultural question than, than anything. I have a question about the comorbidities of obesity. So some of the things that I think about, in addition to the actual diseases that are related to it, are are things like, what do you do in a movie theater when you can't fit into the seat? What do you do on an airplane when you weigh as much as two people and you can't fit into a seat? Do you have to buy two tickets? Is that ever part of your research or what you look at? and what people feel, how they feel about themselves or any of that?
1: No, it's not directly part of my research because I'm more interested in the physiology and basically the mechanism of obesity. But like I said, I've been president of the North American Association for the Study of Obesity. I've been exposed to all that. And indeed, first of all, again uh, you, you I, I remember a trial against Canada Airline because they imposed to buy two seats two people and there was a lawsuit and and of course you know it becomes first of all it was still at the time that you had this stigma associated with obesity it's your fault
0: mm-hmm. you are
1: suffering from your mistake mm-hmm. and I know now we, we know it's not true but I mean you know, if you still go in football stadium or soccer stadium in in Europe, I mean, the seats are much narrower and all that compared to here Mm -hmm. and things are being adapted. And I think that there is this cultural change which is necessary, but also for the sake of health, because obesity and excess weight is a liability for your health. We need to have better efficacious strategies to decrease the epidemic of obesity. And here it takes, again, public health policies, it takes government intervening, and it takes also the people to be conscious. And you were talking about culture, you know. uh, First of all, there is a disparity when it comes to obesity in general. You know, African-American are more affected and then Hispanics a little bit more, and the Caucasians or white people are the least affected by, for example, obesity. doesn't mean that they don't have it, but, you know, the prevalence in African-Americans is almost 48%, and it's only 38 to 39 in Caucasians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and of course, there's cultural differences. There's this health disparity, and we have to take all that into account when it comes to, you know, the 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 health of the population.
0: Yes, yes. So, do you want to leave us with any sort of things that are being looked at for the future?
1: Now, I'm I'm hopeful that. I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of studies for aging now because I'm aging. <laughs> and I'm, I am also. <laughs> and I'd like to age as healthy as possible. Of course, I've been an exerciser all my life. Uh, you know, why is that? I don't know if it's my genes or whatever, but I enjoy exercising. I pay a little bit attention. I exercise, you know, you're going to, you're going to laugh at, out of that, but I exercise because it allows me to eat all what I want. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I would have to restrain myself towards food. Mm-hmm. I think that not only we have to think about obesity as a risk factor for a lot of disease, but it's also a risk factor for poor aging. Dementia is uh, associated with obesity. You know, you have many more cases of Alzheimer's disease in people with overweight or obesity. You have a lot of conditions which are affected by obesity in terms of quality of life. I mean, think about, you know, these people having trouble to climb the steps or mm-hmm. having trouble to move and so on because of joint problems. And also, you know, there's still this stigma about obesity. And I think that this has to change, but I think we have to do a, we have to help this reversal. And your example of smoking is a very good one. And I know the guy who took down the tobacco companies, and he's trying to do, he wants to try to do the same against the food companies. But, you know, personally, I don't bed mouth, you know, food companies, because this is what the people want. They want like I said, palatable and cheap food, they have it. But if they can sell unhealthy food because of the, the power of their marketing, they can also sell very healthy food. And I mm-hmm. think we have to use these same people to market health. And you know, big big food companies, Nestle, Unilever, and all that, mm-hmm. they are aware of that. And now they know that they have to work in this space. I mean, why do you have whole food? Most people don't go to whole food or fresh market because it's too expensive. Right. But mm-hmm. they are gonna go there and being as competitive as other in producing or selling healthier food. That's my hope.
0: Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. And uh, it's a lot to think about.
1: All right, it was my pleasure. Bye-bye, Liz. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.